Welcome to the Food Junkies Podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. On today's episode, we have Gary Tobbs, an award-winning investigative science and health journalist. He is author of four critically acclaimed books, Good Calories, Bad Calories, Why We Get Fat, The Case for Keto, and the book we're discussing with him today, The Case Against Sugar. In 2002, Gary wrote a New York Times Magazine cover story, What If It's All Been a Big Fat Lie? This caused a huge stir in the ongoing fat versus carbohydrate discussions. Then in his book, Good Calories, Bad Calories, he went on to show that the key to good health is the kind of calories we take in, not the total number. In this book, The Case Against Sugar, it's pretty much an expose that makes the convincing case that sugar is the tobacco of the new millennium. Through his research, he has shaken up preconceptions about diet and health, and he challenges scientific studies that have been misinterpreted and prescribed as advice for the general public for years. He offers instead new ways to eat, live, and think about health based on the highest caliber of scientific research. In this episode, Gary discusses his thoughts on a vegan food plan versus a carnivore one, where he thinks some of the research may lie when looking at sugar and its effects on children. He also shares whether he believes sugar is a drug and the effects he witnessed in his own child. He gives us his take on sweeteners as a harm reduction tool, and we asked him if he's received any pushback from the sugar industry. Gary isn't on the big sugar enemy hit list yet, but he hopes to make it there one day. I think that might be our Food Junkies podcast goals too. Enjoy the show. Gary Tobes, you can see that we are great fans of yours and are absolutely thrilled to have you visit us, like thrilled. You don't even know how much. So welcome. Would you like to respond? <laughs> well, uh, Tony, Vera, thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be here. And thank you for all the kind words. As I, we were saying briefly before we got started, I love Toronto and maybe moving there with my family come November 4th so uh, or November 5th or whenever it happens to be decided. No, I'm just kidding. Anyway, let's talk about sugar. Let's do it. All right. Thank you. So I want to take my first question from your book, The Case Against Sugar. So just for our listeners to get a sort of background, your latest book, The Case Against Sugar, shows the connection between the rise of the sugar industry over the past hundred years and ties that to the prevalence of health concerns that we suffer today. And uh, there's three quotes that I want to read just uh, as a backdrop to our conversation. By the 1920s, these are your quotes, uh, by the 1920s, sugar refineries were producing as much sugar in a single day millions of pounds as would have taken refineries in the 1820s to do in an entire decade. In 1960, fewer than 13% of Americans were obese and diabetes was diagnosed in 1%. Today, the percentage of obese Americans has almost tripled to like two thirds of the population or more. And the percentage of Americans with diabetes has increased sevenfold. So that instead of one in a hundred, it's essentially now almost one in 10 or it's going to be there soon. And the last quote, 
We now eat in two weeks the amount of sugar our ancestors of 200 years ago ate in one whole year, and hence the illness that has followed. So Gary, can you elaborate? Now, this is maybe not a fair question because I'm asking you to squish a huge concept into a paragraph or less, but can you elaborate how eating too much sugar can bring us to getting fatter and sicker? Uh, okay. That's that a, is big, a question. big question. Yeah. So let me first shift it and just explain a little bit more the argument I make in this book. So the, the argument, the book's okay. called The Case Against Sugar for a reason, because what we've seen worldwide, not just in the United States, is worldwide the epidemic levels of obesity and diabetes that appear whenever a population shifts from whatever its traditional diet was. It doesn't matter what kind of diet they ate, whether it was purely carnivore or almost purely plant-based. And when they shift to a Western diet, you see these dramatic increase in obesity and diabetes, and then all the diseases that associate with obesity and diabetes, which is basically every chronic disease that'll kill us prematurely. Conventional wisdom is that as we make that shift, you have more food available, you have less physical activity, people eat more, they get fatter, and then so they get fatter because they eat more and they get diabetic because they're getting heavier. And the argument that I make in the book and I made in my other books is that the process of getting fatter, getting obese is a issue. It's not a calorie issue. It's a dysregulation of hormones and particularly the hormone insulin. And insulin is driven by the carbohydrates we consume. And the problem there, ironically, is or the primary problem is the effect of one component of a sugar molecule on the metabolism that happens in the liver, not else. So sugar, when we're talking sugar, we're talking about a molecule of glucose, two carbohydrates, glucose bonded to a molecule of fructose. Mm -hmm. Glucose is the stuff of starches and grains and everything plant-based that we eat. Fructose is the sweetest of the carbohydrates. It's what makes sugar sweet. It's what makes fruit sweet. It's what makes white bread sweet, ironically, because there's a high sugar content in white bread. And our glucose is metabolized by virtually every cell in our body. Fructose is metabolized primarily in the liver. And so this chain of causality that I'm discussing in this book, which is well worked out by scientists, but it's just kind of been ignored in large part because of, well, and we could talk about why it's been ignored, but the, uh, and we will, um, yes, we yeah, the metabolism of the fructose in the liver seems to cause fat accumulation in the liver. The fat accumulation in the liver seems to be a primary cause of the condition called insulin resistant. Hmm. Insulin is secreted by the pancreas, but the resistance starts to happen in the liver. And as you get insulin resistant, your pancreas has to pump out more insulin to do the job that it used to do. And now that insulin makes you burn carbohydrates and store fat and you start getting fatter and then you start getting diabetic and all these chronic diseases follow. So the argument ultimately that what I'm the case I'm arguing is that you add sugar to any population's diet in any amount, and particularly perhaps liquid sugars, like Coca-Cola has tried its very best to do around the world and succeeded, then you end up with obesity and diabetes and all the rest. 
That's great. And just to add on to that, you uh, make the case in uh, the case against sugar that not only is it diabetes and obesity, but we can even extend the story to cancer and to Alzheimer's. Do you want to comment on that? Uh, In the case of both cancer and Alzheimer's, it turns out that there's a pretty profound link with this condition, insulin resistance, and with uptake of glucose, blood sugar for fuel. So when you have elevated blood sugar, you have a higher risk of dementia, both Alzheimer's and diabetes-related or stroke-related dementia. And insulin itself plays significant roles in both these disease states. So you can find in the medical literature plenty of articles saying that insulin resistance is a driver of both dementia and cancer. And all I'm doing is linking it back to what's the cause of insulin that ultimate insulin resistance. And again, the conventional wisdom is that people just eat too much or they don't exercise enough. The alternative is that they're consuming too much sugar. There are several ways I try to judge how far this message has disseminated into the medical establishment. So when I started my research 20 years ago, I would say maybe a dozen physicians in Canada and the United States thought like I came to think by the time I was done with my research. For instance, there's a Facebook group in Canada of women physicians who Mm -hmm. sort of think and eat like I do. And last time I looked, about six months ago, there were maybe four or 4,500 women physicians just in Canada. Yeah. So in that case, it's definitely making inroads. Around the country, there are people who are pretty well accepted and well respected in the medical research community who think as we do. I think in general, the medical community has accepted that they should have been going after sugar for 50, 60 years at least, and that it's better late than never, and they've all kind of jumped on a sugar bandwagon. The idea that it's the problem is hyperinsulinemia and insulin resistance and that sugar can be a cause is something that's still very much a minority viewpoint. You have in, a, in your writing a, a term that I found really useful, which was this concept of the sugar latency period, that part of the reason why we don't connect these dots between uh, the problem with uh, high sugar and the long, long, long-term consequences of even something like Alzheimer's is that it can take up to 10 to 20 years to actually manifest the illness. And that length of time, we just don't make those connections. It's interesting because we're set up, the research community is set up to study a few acute effects of whatever we put in our mouth. So if something's poisonous, you do a study in the rats or humans and you look what happens over the course of three months. And if somebody eats it and turns green and drops dead, you know that maybe the FDA shouldn't give it its blessing. Uh-huh. Uh, we have no mechanism to test for chronic disease relationships, the relationship, and even a point, the great historian Sidney Mintz, who wrote one of two sort of seminal books on sugar and its history, Sweetness and Power, a point he made was that sugar does seem to act like a drug, at least when you give it to children, and yet we don't treat it the way we treat other drugs because it doesn't have this sort of acute after effects or Again, we could debate whether or not it does or not in children, but you don't have a hangover the next day. You don't pass out and, you know, after you've had three ice cream cones and crash your car, all these things. So because its effects are delayed, we don't treat it like a drug. And then when the industry has, there's never been any studies that could actually link sugar consumption directly 
to the diseases it's likely to cause. Study. Yeah. But there are people who say that uh, you can eat uh, like a vegan lifestyle, which is a fairly high carb plant-based yeah. lifestyle, and they're losing weight and they're doing very well. And, and just yeah. how would you fit in this insulin model in that context? Well, so it's interesting because part of the reason the argument that led me to write the case against sugar. Yeah. So in the first book, I good calories, bad calories, I resuscitated what had been a British hypothesis in the 60s, advocated, promoted by the leading British nutritionists that the primary problem with modern diets is in like white flour and sugar. Mm. And you add white flour and sugar to it. And then often people would say, well, okay, you're blaming it on these refined carbohydrates. What about Southeast Asia? Now we're yeah. back to the China study. These exactly. people eat a lot of carbs. Yeah. But the carbs they were eating were very different than the carbs we've been eating. So you, you have sort of two different paradigms. One says as populations become westernized, they eat more. Uh -huh. They eat more fat. They eat more meat. They exercise less. They eat fewer vegetables and fruits. And so the causes of the chronic disease that associate with being westernized are all these eating more, exercising less, eating more meat. And right. if you remove the meat, you'll get healthier. Okay. And the other paradigm, the one that I was pushing in my book says yeah. promoting is a very viable hypothesis is that as populations get westernized, they add these highly refined carbohydrates to their diets, particularly white flour and sugar. So even populations like the Inuit or yes. the Thai in Africa that were almost exclusively carnivores, when they start eating white flour and sugar, get the same diseases that the Southeast Asians get when they start eating refined mm -hmm. flour and sugar. And so implication is for a diet to be healthy, you have to get rid, which we agree with, you have to get rid of the sugar first. Right. And the flour, so processed grains second. So the white bread. And when I read the vegan literature and I talk to my vegan friends and my wife is a mostly vegetarian and her sister is a pretty close to being a vegan. It's yeah. you differentiate between a healthy vegan diet and an unhealthy vegan diet. And that's the common ground. The common ground is if you remove the sugar and the white flour, you have a healthy carnivore diet, a healthy keto diet, a healthy paleo diet, a healthy vegan diet, and right. anyone will get healthier uh -huh. that than what they were eating. Yeah. And the question becomes for the vegan world, are they healthier because they're not eating meat? Uh -huh. Are they healthier because they're not eating and drinking sugar and beer and alcohol and right. eating white bread and going to the market and buying Twinkies? In my new books, so I have a new book coming out in December called The Case for Keto that addresses, yes. tries to address all these issues. And I have one chapter towards it. I interviewed over 120 physicians for this book among these several tens of thousands that I estimate are now out there. Mm -hmm. And I, it was wonderful because a lot of them are very, very smart. And a lot of them are Canadian because mm. Canada is sort of leading the way in this shift. There's one chapter in which I discuss two physicians. One is a spine surgeon in Ohio who used to work for the Cleveland Clinic who's a vegan and she eats a vegan ketogenic diet. And one is a psychotherapist in Western Massachusetts who's a carnivore and eats a carnivore ketogenic diet. Oh, that's and great. Both, I, love, I love how we're mixing this so that it's yeah. not one or the other. Right. And they both move to vegan versus kind of the, the doctor who's a vegan says she just can't tolerate animal products. She tries on occasions. 
but her body tells her that she's not healthy when she eats them. And the one who moved towards carnivore slowly learned that her body can't tolerate plant products. But they both try to keep their insulin as low as possible, which is sort of what you're trying to do with the ketogenic diet. Yeah. And the chapter heading is something the spine surgeon told me. She said, it's not a religion. It's just about how I feel. Part of what I'm trying to get across in my books is that once we get rid of what to me are the obvious problems, the sugar and the refined, highly refined grains, then it becomes about how you feel and what results you're getting. And some of us end up moving further and further towards sort of ketogenic diet and animal rich, animal product rich diets, because that's what we have to do to feel healthy. And some of us end up moving the other way because that's what they have to do to feel healthy. Given that there is the scenario of sugar being a problem, that we can agree, regardless of what food plan we're doing, that this is refined flour, refined carbs, mm-hmm. and sugar is the problem. Why is it that people are eating this way despite their best intent? So what's your answer to that? It's interesting. So you know in the book, when you actually circa 2000 and say 14, when I was writing that chapter, when you actually go looking for research, On sugar and addiction, there was surprisingly little, in part because the government wouldn't fund it, in part because until maybe the early 2000s, to study such a thing was perceived as quackery. So, you know, the idea was sugar tastes good, we like it, the calorie is a calorie, that's all you need to know, and then don't eat fat because that'll give you heart disease. And that's pretty much what the government's funded. So there were a few groups around the world that studied sugar and addiction in animals, and concluded that at least in rats and lab mice, sugar's at least as addictive as morphine or heroin or any other addictive drug. I know from my own experience, and I say in the book, it's impossible to write about these subjects without it being, you know, without your own experience. And as I do have a caffeine addiction, I'm always drinking coffee as even mm-hmm. in the middle of the afternoon. And I had, I was smoked cigarettes in my youth. So I struggled with all of this. And from my own perspective, clearly it's addictive in a way similar to that of other drugs, but not identical to. And I've met people who would tell me that for them it's identical. So they, by that, for instance, I mean, if I quit sugar after a few days, I don't think about that. I don't have withdrawal symptoms. I don't but I have to, I can't have it in the house. If I have it in the house, I'm going to eat it. Or I'm going to mm-hmm. think about eating it. Other, I've met people who said they had terrible withdrawal getting off sugar. And I'm sure you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that your concept, this is one of the reasons why I like it so much about the latency period. We can see that with addiction as well, that there is a latency period because we eat food and it takes a while to digest. It's not a quick phenomena. Yeah, things just take longer and so that the actual syndrome of addiction takes longer to get entrenched into the person's brain but um, there are other i mean it's fascinating it's fascinating subject because it's really never been studied and the ethics of studying it in children is going to be very interesting yeah i've one of my favorite memories in a sort of perverse sense from my children's childhood was my youngest son when he was three after his first Halloween, which is not surprisingly my least favorite holiday of the year. <laughs> right. We let him have like three little candy bars. And you don't think about it. So a three-year-old who made my weight say 30 or 40 pounds, three little candy bars to him would be the equivalent of 20 candy bars to me by weight. 
Yeah. Okay, even the little ones. And he took off his clothes and ran around the house naked for 20 minutes. And then when I said, literally like in circles around the house. And when I wow. said, okay, you've got to go to sleep now. You have to, he threw himself on the stairs, hysterically sobbing. And we had yeah. to carry him off the bed. And I turned to my wife and I said, if he went to back, if we had given him cocaine, his behavior would not have been any more bizarre. Uh-huh. But you don't do studies like that on children. Uh I'll tell you, there's one other thing I left out of my book. So Mm -hmm. the idea that sugar causes attention deficit hyperactivity. Yes, I wanted you to talk about that. Yes. Okay, which, so in the 80s, it would have been called hyperactivity. Yep. And as a parent, I would swear it's true. Okay. But one of the interesting things is in the 80s, they did a series of pretty well-designed studies to test this hypothesis, they being the researchers. And what they did for the most part is they would take kids in school and they would feed them either a sugary beverage or a non-caloric sweetener beverage. Like one group would get Coke and one group would get Diet Coke and they wouldn't know what it was. And then they would send them home to their parents and their parents would chart their behavior. Like, did they have a meltdown? Were they, did they lose their temper? And then they would compare they could unblind the study. So the parents were blinded to what the kids had drank and the kids were blinded to what they drank. And then they could chart their behavior afterwards and send them home and see, was there any difference? And there were about six, maybe eight of these studies and there was no difference, which is pretty compelling, except you could then say, well, wait, maybe we're too far along on this train of Mm. sugar consumption. Mm -hmm. Maybe we should do this study by getting the kids off sugar first, spend a month, get them all off sugar, and now do the study and see if you get the same result, and you yeah. might not. And so there's a lot of issues. Whenever I would say, and I still do this with my kids, they're 15 and 11, and my oldest son gets headaches, and I go, ah, did you have a juice today? He's like, no, dad, today was not a juice day. He's so tired of this. Yeah. And even my wife points out that I'll pay attention to the times he did and build my theories on that, but I won't pay attention to the times he gets a headache and didn't have any sugar in the past 24 hours. Yeah. Or do I think artificial sweeteners are better than sugar? Mm -hmm. And the answer is yes, I do. And I think I know enough people who would never get off sugar if they couldn't use artificial sweeteners as a crutch. I couldn't get off cigarettes without nicotine patches and nicotine gum, and then I chewed nicotine gum for a dozen years before I finally quit that. Sugar versus artificial sweeteners, I much prefer artificial sweeteners. If nothing else, they're so potent, the sweeteners, that the dose you get is could Mm -hmm. be one three hundredth the dose of the sugar. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to imagine as the same kind of cause being, and the diseases I'm concerned about, obesity, diabetes, heart disease, those I can't link those to artificial sweeteners the way you can link them to sugar as strong associations. Okay. Then the question is, are artificial sweeteners better than... Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> and the answer is no. I mean, if you right. did, I think everyone is better than get rid of their sweet tooth. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's the so goal. Have you had any uh, retaliation? I've just been very curious about this. What's their um, response to you? Uh, No, and I'm disappointed. (laughs) What am I, chopped liver? It's come on. Um, Even uh, four or five years ago, Rob Lustig, who is the sort of primary physician and researcher in the medical community, has been taking up this anti-sugar movement. And Rob showed me a list of people the sugar industry had identified as sort of an enemies list, and I wasn't on it, and I was (laughs) hurt. But 
<laughs> no, actually, they've been part of the message of the last 60 years is they're very good at public relations, the sugar industry and the corn refining. So when I was writing, so my sugar book started off with the research, good calories, bad calories. And I did a cover story for the New York Times Magazine in 2011 called Is Sugar Toxic? Mm-hmm. And I was interviewing everyone I could interview. And I one of the people I got to was the head of the Corn Refiners Association. Mm. So these are the associate people who put out high fructose corn syrup. Yes. And she said to me in the interview, are you writing positive I mean, what take are you taking in this article? And I said, well, I'm writing about those researchers who are asking the question of whether there's something unique about sugar and caloric sweeteners that causes these metabolic changes and these diseases like obesity, diabetes, whether they're uniquely toxic. Mm -hmm. And she said, well, what side do you come down on? And I don't, I'm just not going to lie about this. And I said, you know, frankly, I, they make a compelling case to me and that's the case I'm going to make. And she was fine with that. The only thing she was concerned about was that I not portray high fructose corn syrup as different than sugar because they had such confidence that sugar would succeed, <laughs> that people would not give up their drug in effect. Yeah that all they wanted to do is be carried along is recognize that they're not worse than sugar. And the sugar industry itself, they never directly went after people. And I don't really blame them because a lot of times people say the sugar industry is no worse, is as bad as the tobacco industry. But what the tobacco industry had to do was convince the world that what the researchers knew about tobacco was not true. Whereas what the sugar industry had to do was convince the world was that what the researchers believed, calories a calorie, fat is a problem, was true. So they funded people in the nutrition community to better get across their message that what they believed was true was indeed true and true for sugar also. And considering this very small percentage of people believed otherwise, you could ask the question, what was their obligation? to believe the fringe versions of me 60 yes. years ago. Yes. And you know, there's fringe people who are always arguing crazy things. With the vegan movement, which is the chipsy argument from is it sugar and refined grains to is it meat and animal products? And mm-hmm. I mean, if they're right, then they're certainly right to do it. But because I don't believe they are, it's sort of it confounds the issue of getting people healthy. I don't want somebody saying, hey, you know, Coca-Cola is vegan. If I don't eat my hamburger, but I drink my Coke and eat my French fries, I'll be healthy. And this is, you know, one of the advantages to being a journalist. And by the way, when it comes to sugar industry influence on the science, Kristen Kearns gets the bulk of the credit for that. And I can't leave her out. She came to me 10 years ago, well, eight years ago with the research she had gathered herself as a dentist who was concerned about what she was seeing and did remarkable work and gets, I just got to benefit from her investigative research. But for the bigger story, uh-huh. as a journalist, you know, when people don't realize, so I'm a journalist with a science background and my first two books were on bad science. It's what I know as well as anyone. People don't get degrees studying bad science. I actually had the opportunity to write two books on researchers who got the wrong answers. So I, I know what it smells like. Then as a journalist, you can interview anyone. So as part of an academic's job, you're not calling up your colleagues and exactly. interviewing them on the phone about what they think. I could do that. And I could do it 
with hundreds, I think I interviewed 600 researchers, administrators for yeah. my first book. I'm always a, kind of embarrassed when I find somebody who played a significant role who I didn't talk to. And I could call up people who had done their work 40, 50 years earlier, who were wow. in their 80s and 90s, yeah. and talk to them about how they interpreted the work and what, and people will be very honest with you about the problems when they're not writing for American Medical Association. Yeah. Well. Or their reviewers. So in one sense, journalists aren't, we're not trained to do what we do, but we have an enormous benefit in getting to talk to. And then as you put it, we're not locked into a discipline. Yeah. So you spent four years, that's like a PhD amount of material that on an area that we spend, I don't know, a few hours. Well, not only that, it's, I did it at the period when the internet really was like a new technology that had come along Uh and it allowed me to do what would have been 30 or 40 years of work previously. It used to be you had to go to the library and you'd sit in the library and you'd laboriously pull out a book. And and now, I mean, it's funny, today you can download them all. Now it's too much information. But when I did it, it was just enough that I could, it was doable. And I had young researchers in Boston, New York, and Los Angeles, whose job was to go to medical school libraries, and I would send them emails with Mm. 50 references, Mm. and they would go to the libraries. I couldn't get into the medical school libraries in New York because you needed proper ID, and they would get them for me, and they would just, I would get boxes in the mail of hundreds and hundreds of, uh, and you could buy any book on the subject, which included conference proceedings. I could chart the history of obesity and diabetes research by the textbooks, which I could buy used and for $8 from a bookstore in Ohio, which would be happy to mail it to me. And then from the conference proceedings that nobody wanted 50-year-old conference proceedings except me. So yeah, it was really, it's quite an experience. The problem is it locked me into being this sort of nutrition zealot that I now have to live for the rest of my uh-huh. life. Yeah, but, but we love you. We love the zealotry we love, because we're zealots. So in speaking in the spirit of zealotry, I'm going to end, end my questions with one more question, which is what can we do in terms of uh, confronting big sugar? What do you think is the next thing either that you can do or that we can do in terms of moving the agenda of zealotry towards big sugar? Well, I think... What we want to do, and I think we're succeeding at this, is convincing people that sugar is not benign, mm-hmm. that sugary beverages are not benign, that it's not about the calories, you can't balance it out, that if you want to be healthy, this is a food product you have to avoid. And the more, the better job you do at avoiding it, the more healthy you'll feel and the more positive feedback you'll get. So what we've done is actually have lined up uh, three people, Adrian, Peter, H, and Sherry in order. If there's one question I'd like to throw to Gary, if I could, well, first of all, we'll see if we, whatever we can do to get you on that hit list. <laughs> we will, we, will we want see. you on there too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll take a look, see. In your book, I mean, you've done a tremendous amount of research. You did a fair amount as it relates to the Native American population and there's something always been near and dear to my heart, and you get into the information, into the data as it relates to Pima, Pima, Arizona. And if I'm out in left field, tell me, you won't be the first, but as I'm reading the chapter, one is, first of all, the numbers are just mind-blowing in terms of the rates of obesity, diabetes, and what I found astonishing is how far back it went. 
But if I'm reading the chapter correctly, and I realize it's not your words, it's coming from the NIH, but my understanding is after a few generations or a couple of generations or perhaps more, there's no going back. So my question is, maybe if you could generalize your takeaway from what you researched, the particular Pima or the other early days of data, and this notion of there's no going back. Well, so the, the issue with the Pima is, so this is a Native American population in Arizona on a south of Phoenix, uh, the NIH set up a laboratory to study this population in the mid-60s when they stumbled on the fact that they had this explosive diabetes rates. And I mean, literally, uh, some British researchers who wanted to study rheumatoid arthritis in a dry climate were taking blood samples from the Pima and realized that I think it was 50% of the adults had diabetic levels of blood sugar. So the issue with them is the, they set up what's called a longitudinal study where you can study the population over time. And they noticed that, and they could look as, as Pima women got married and got pregnant, they could see if they were diabetic or pre-diabetic or overweight or obese during pregnancy and realize that there was a, in the offspring of these children, there was a huge increase in diabetes rates. And the woman who was diabetic during pregnancy had a child who was some, I think, maybe a 30 or 40-fold increased risk of being obese and diabetic by their 20s than a woman who was healthy, who was non-diabetic in pregnancy. And gestational diabetes was in the middle. And they followed through multiple generations. And the conclusion was that what they call the intrauterine environment, the environment in the womb of the mother is a huge driver in whether or not the children are predisposed to become obese and diabetic. And so this chapter was called the if-then problem, because if sugar is causing obesity and diabetes, and it's causing it in the population, then that population is going to pass it on from generation to generation. With each generation, it's going to be a vicious circle. It's going to get worse. So you're going to have children who are born so predisposed to be obese and diabetic that I don't even think they're restricting, you know, you can put them on a ketogenic or an Atkins diet from the day they're born and you'll moderate this, but you won't reverse it. That's the implication of all that. And it's a very frightening implication that the kids who are being born today to mothers who have this problem themselves are going to be so predisposed that they're ineffectively doomed to becoming obese and diabetic as adults, and then the the women in that population will pass it on. I could imagine it might be possible to reverse this by putting the mother herself on the right dietary therapy, which I would think is, because of my biases now, would be a ketogenic diet, and to do that during pregnancy, but you would have to study that very close. It would be hard to pass an institutional review board because the ethics of putting a pregnant mother on a ketogenic diet would be very questionable because you don't know what's going to happen. And then you'd still want to follow the children for 20 or 30 years to see if they actually are leaner and healthier Mm -hmm. than women who are not. But I think that's the only way I can imagine to sort of reverse that snowball effect from generation to generation. Thank you very much for the yes, a very concerning issue, but a message that needs to get out. So, Adrian, Adrian, I have you uh, on. Uh, you're on. You've just been unmuted. It's Adrian C. You can go ahead and throw your question to Gary. Thank you, Dr. Tarman and Mr. Tobbs, for the interview. I'm Adrian. I'm trained as a chemical engineer and food technologist, and spent most of my professional career 
doing research with sweeteners. And in April 2019, I launched a website to showcase the multitude of sugars and sweeteners sold in stores across the United States. The question I have to you, Mr. Tubbs, is related to something I noticed while building my website. There is a surge of new zero-calorie sweeteners that hit stores in the past 12 months, I would say. For Stevia, about 100 products were launched for another popular natural sweetener called monk fruit. Over 70 products. The newest sweetener in stores is a sugar called Alulose. It's promoted with the slogan, the sugar without the calories. I found 30 new Alulose products launched in the past six months. So in your opinion, is that surge in products an indication that Americans are in fact trying to get rid of sugar? <laughs> the answer is yes, clearly. The good news that this is the industry sees a huge market for fructose sweeteners, we'll call them that. I don't know. Um, so that's good news. They clearly want to stop sugar, but don't want to stop eating their... Their drug. <laughs> their drug, yeah. The bad news is all these things make me nervous too. So that's when I said, on the one hand, there's one reason I came to think that maybe the sugary beverages are the fundamental problem, worse than everything, because of the way we drink sugary beverages. We nurse them all day long. So it's like you're infusing glucose and fructose into your body all day long. And when you're doing that, you're not burning fat and your liver is struggling to keep up. And uh, it's a little different than having a dessert at the end of a meal. And that's the only sweets you have for the day. So I could imagine that these products are benign, but they worry me. And I have friends who... They send me boxes of this stuff now. They're mm -hmm. they keto food companies, and they come in the mail, and there's 20 chocolate bars that, to me, are delicious. And I send them an email saying, never send me these chocolate bars again. I don't want them in the house. And they say, why, you don't like them? And I go, no, I do like them. Mm -hmm. If I didn't like them, you could send as many as you want. Mm -hmm. But it worries me from a, keeping the addiction alive. And I personally don't like the idea of managing my addictions. I find it much easier to deal with cold turkey and get over it but also the health effects again we can test for short-term health effects if somebody consumes this stuff over decades you know who knows okay tony we're uh, running out of time can i gary can i contract with you for another 10 minutes maybe yeah no i'm clearly i like to talk okay, um, okay good and Great. i like intelligent questions <laughs> okay uh, thank you very much everybody for this as an executive chef it kills me when i see how much sugars in our uh, food supply and you know i see it in my daughter's school system and it just doesn't make sense to me and to try and push that narrative to what we need to do in terms of getting sugar out you know it's it's two questions one is what would you suggest would be the best route to get this message across to the schools turns together and approach the school board and see whether they're open to that kind of uh the problem also is they make money from selling sugary beverages in vending machines. So you have to deal with that as well. Uh, thank you very much, Dr. Vera Tarman and Gary Tobes. What a delight to be here with both of you.
My question has to do with what do you suggest for families and especially parents of children impacted by sugar consumption? What can a parent do? What can the teacher do? Our school system, I think they're impacted. I put a note there about the political national agenda in terms of food for schools. But what can a doctor or a dentist do? Because all of these people have an impact, drip, 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 uh, to make a change. So what can we say and do for our children, and especially children that don't have epilepsy? So can we do some things that move toward keto and keep them healthy and all of that? Where's What can we do? Okay, so this is very clearly child-dependent, and my... You know, I have to acknowledge that I've been I'm a parent. I say that in my book, that even everything I write in the book is also informed by the fact that I have two boys and it's a constant struggle to keep the house. And I can tell you what I do, which is we're not a family that's predisposed to obesity or diabetes. So it's a different issue. It doesn't run in our families. I'm about as thick and as heavy as any of my relatives are. And so I try to keep the house juice and soda free. And it's still a struggle because my wife thinks children should get to enjoy childhood. I don't know where she gets that idea. And that includes sugar to some extent. They know they won't get dessert from me, although they know they can get it occasionally from their mother. And I think we have an obligation to teach our kids to eat healthy and whatever that means. And I've actually thought about that with my family, which is, look, this is you know part of what being a parent means is teaching our kids to eat healthy and trying to make it happen. And eating healthy at the moment means keeping sugar consumption to a minimum. And that's basically what I try to do. I don't fight. I think if doctors and dentists reinforce it, if your physician says or your dentist says, don't do this, and they've always been hesitant to do it, and the message right is fat and salt, not sugar. But if the physicians and the dentists are saying to the children, you know, you really shouldn't do this. This is bad for you. I think the message is far more powerful than if it comes from parents, or at least my kids will listen to their doctor more than they'll listen to me. There's a fellow in the uh, chat who just said that he's written a book called Sugar Proof, which is all about how to empower families. To yes, Michael, so if somebody wants to look on the chat, did you want to add something to that, Gary? I was just going to say it's Michael Goran from yeah. uh, USA. Hi, Michael, if you're there. Are you did there? You, yeah. I, I, can I mute him? Would you like that? Yeah, I think you should have okay. Michael on your... Okay, Michael, give me uh, two seconds here. You should be unmuted now. Hi, it's a great, great conversation. Thank you. This has been wonderful. So tell the audience about Sugar Proof, which just came out about a month ago. Yeah, Sugar Proof. I've been uh, doing research at USC and Children's Hospital on sugars in children, and we've just published this book with Penguin Random House. And it's basically a plan to do what you were just talking about, to help families wow. uh, raise kids who can learn how to self-regulate in sugar. So we're not saying we can take it away because, as Gary says, in many cases, sugar is sweet treats as part of childhood. So the idea is to try and cut out the usual culprits, find all the hidden sugars in the house so that we can enjoy, have kids enjoy sweet treats. And we have recipes in there that, all, none of them use added sugars, so we've, we've developed recipes that use natural sweetness of whole foods, like bananas or dates or apples for, for the sweetness. And we have a seven-day plan for getting families through a period of no added sugars, just to see what happens if you take sugars out of the diet. 
Okay. Hi, Gary. Thanks for taking my question. Hey, Sherry. Um, you were talking earlier about behavioral problems in kids and how they may or may not relate to sugar in the diet. And you also talked about pregnant mom's diet and the effect that can have on the eventual obesity and diabetes outcomes of her child. And I'm just wondering if there's any known link at all between the diet of a pregnant mom and behavioral outcomes in the kids. Well, I'm going to ask Michael Goran to answer this because we discussed this just yesterday. And there's a study he knows about that I, it was new to me. So, Michael, can you click on? Yeah, you're on again. <laughs> yeah, so both real sugar and alternative sweeteners studies show that consumption during pregnancy can amplify preference for sweetness. So babies are born with a natural preference for sweetness because it's supposed to be protective, but that can be amplified by exposure in the womb to either real sugar or alternative sweeteners. And also both real sugar and alternative sweeteners can induce higher risk for obesity in the offspring that can be manifested as young as one year of age. So for some reason, we don't know the mechanism, but even alternative sweeteners can be obesogenic and promote greater preference for sweetness. Hi, Gary. I love your books. Thank and you. I was wondering what you think about CGMs. I've had clients use CGMs with great success at just self-monitoring and regulating and, and really reversing their diabetes. So I'm wondering what you think about them. And for people um, with metabolic syndrome... <laughs> we got a prescription the other day. Whoops, there we go. Why not? I don't know what it is. CGM, what is it? This is a, it's a continuous glucose monitor. Oh. And so it's a wow. relatively new invention. They're about a decade old, and you stick them on. They're the size of a maybe a dollar coin, and there's one. And you can monitor your blood sugar all day long, 24-7, and, and read it off on your smartphone. And it, of course, developed for diabetics. I got it because I was, I'm writing a book about diabetes and I was curious about my blood sugar. It's, you, there we go. It's used by not just people who suffer from diabetes, but it's being embraced on some level by the low carbohydrate crowd because the idea ultimately is you're trying to keep your blood sugar as stable as possible and your insulin use as low as possible. Um, I've been told that it's a very powerful behavioral tool that mm. you give a continuous glucose monitor someone with diabetes and they suddenly see what meal to meal, what the foods are doing to their blood sugar. It doesn't measure the insulin though, eh? No, just measures blood sugar. It's a shame it doesn't measure insulin because you could get a, by hyper secreting insulin, you could get a yeah. blunted blood sugar response. But I think it's probably the, technology that will change our dietary thinking more than any other because it suddenly direct by once you direct attention to blood sugar which is sort of the message of all the sugar carb story then now you have a way to see how it directly influences and they're relatively inexpensive even without insurance i think it's like 70 dollars in the united states for oh. two weeks to test your blood sugar and see what's happening and maybe why figure out why it's happening 
Gary, is there anything you wanted to close off with, some sort of message of hope or something that you'd like to leave us with to think about? Um, sugar consumption in the United States, where I know the numbers peaked in 1999, pretty much as soon as we knew there was an obesity epidemic, sugar consumption started coming down and has been coming down pretty steadily since then. <laughs> So you, this message is getting out there, and this is the easy message. The health community, your physicians are very happy to get people off sugar. So we're definitely making progress. We're getting the message across. And I think, you know, again, whether it will be enough to reverse the damage that's been done over the past century, I'm less optimistic about that. But we're getting there. And we're at a place today, 20 years ago, to talk like we've been talking about sugar was quackery. Yeah. Now it's, you know, yeah, everyone thinks that way. And it, a lot of it is thanks to you uh, and the work that you've done. I would like to say, uh, Gary, thank you for your generosity of time today with us and talking about your knowledge base, your books, why we get fat, good calories, bad calories, and especially the case against sugar. We are fans. We love the work that you do. You've made the discussion of sugar toxicity commonplace today and a potential rally point against big sugar. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one -on -one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours. <laughs>